0: Seated. Thank you for joining us, whether it's here or at home. Uh, and happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. Uh, as we've come through the 4th of July, um, it's one of those things, there is much for us as a nation, as a people, to be thankful for. Um, much sacrifice has gone into the liberties that we enjoy, uh, to the prosperity as a nation that we have. And so, We can be thankful to God for that, as well as, um, I think it's important to state, even as a nation, the things, the tensions that we're working through, that uh, even within the tensions, it reminds us that not only has God been kind to us as a nation, but has had mercy upon us uh, as a nation, and so it's all the more to thank the Lord for uh, the country, the nation that we are a part of, that we get to live in, benefit from, and contribute to. So, I uh, hope you've had a wonderful 4th of July, or continuing to have a 4th of July weekend. So, uh, what we're going to do is spend a little bit of time in prayer uh, this morning, before jumping into the sermon, but we're going to be uh, jumping into the sermon in James chapter 2, verse 14. So, if you have your Bibles, you can already start Heading there, we don't have a whole lot of announcements this morning, other than I was reminded just by way of text message just now that T-shirts are for sale, the MercyGate t- T-shirt. So if you're interested in that, you can get a hold of Jody personally, or connect at mgcphila.com is another way that you can also get a hold of purchasing a few T-shirts for ten bucks a piece, I think. So. Um, that is available to you The things that we 're going to be praying for this morning, um, we, with all that's going on, we want to kind of pray into uh, the, the ministry opportunities that God has given us as a church, uh, because we tend to get disconnected from the things that God has placed before us as particular ministries and missions. So the first thing we're going to be praying for is just Puerto Rico. Um, And the ministry opportunities that we've had down there, we want to continue to be kind of like asking the Lord, like, what's next? What will you have? You know, COVID makes this grand question mark for everything at this point. But we want to continue to intercede uh, for Puerto Rico and for and thinking about the uh, opportunities that God might have for us down there. Also, then we're going to be praying for Mercy Gate Youth, uh, previously Grace for Youth. So... Already the kids have been like swinging over to the building throughout the week, knocking, like we're so like out of our minds because they've been stuck in their houses. And so they just want to hang out and have a good time. Uh, So we've been slowly opening up the doors. By the way, we cleaned before, you know, uh, you guys showed up this morning. Uh, But uh, for them to kind of be hanging out and wanting fellowship and not just kind of like. Uh, you know, not just kind of like kiddie fellowship in terms of just like wanting to, you know, run around the building but like wanting conversation wanting to just kind of lean into James and I as we're here, wanting to have good conversation. I mean, we've talked about even in the last week or so I mean, we've talked about fatherhood we've talked about the issues of race of course. Um, It's just been like really wonderful uh, conversations with them. So discipleship continues on some level but you see the hunger, you see the the disconnect that we've experienced in their hunger to kind of press into relationships and uh, to conversations. Then the other thing that we're going to be praying into is we're wondering about this next season and how we should kind of lean back into our DCs. Again, there's a bunch of different factors that play into how those uh, groups might gather or not gather, uh, maybe doing things digitally. So just want to think about Uh, praying through some of the specifics of that, that God would give us wisdom. So let's go ahead. If you've turned to James 2, that's great. Uh, We're going to pray and then jump right into the sermon time.
1: Um,
0: God, we thank you. We thank you um, that you are a God who's come to us in our brokenness and in our sin. When we weren't looking for you, you come after us with relentless grace and mercy And thank you, Lord, that as as you've come after us, you not only save us to yourself, uh, but then you are our light and truth for showing us the way forward, especially during times where um, injustice is felt on different levels, but also in a time that's just confusing, that's new. Um, So God, thank you that you are light, you are truth for us. You are the path forward, you are the way forward. So... Uh, we look to you, and even as we think about um, the opportunities that took place in Puerto Rico over a year ago um, and as we would desire to get back there, God would you continue to kind of fashion a vision for what we should be about as it relates to ministry in Puerto Rico? God stir our hearts for how you love <laughs> how you love Puerto Rico. Um, would you align our hearts with your own? Would something of your love uh, be known to us, that we would rightly reflect your own compassion uh, for the island of Puerto Rico? So God, we, we, we thank you for what you've done, but we just ask God, would you continue to shape vision for how uh, to go about serving in Puerto Rico? But God, we also then think of right here locally with uh, the youth in the neighborhood. Um, God, we, yeah, we just confess. We, we love them. We care about them. Um, thank you for the relationships that we've been able to begin with some 30 kids right on the block here. Thank you. Um, thank you that it's, it is not a duty whatsoever to engage with these kids. Thank you that there's so much in just interacting with them that we get the benefit of there's something of satisfaction brought to our own hearts um, in interacting with them and hearing their ups and downs throughout even this past season. So God, would you give wisdom in, in the time and as we look forward, wh- how, how to handle these kind of things with all the recommendations for um, keeping social distancing in play and all this. Um, God, we need, we need wisdom. Uh, but we, we pray that there would be a way in which you would tend to the hearts of each one of those kids from a distance. But even as we would think about kind of coming together and having some time together, would you bless those conversations? Would you enrich them? Would you be the light and truth at the center of those conversations? So, God, we ask for your mercy, your grace upon them. And God, as we think about returning to BCs, whether that ends up being online or if, if there's things that we can do to be in person, uh, again, we just need the wisdom for that. We know that you value the gathered, uh, your gathered church, and so we we miss out on the blessings when we're not physically with one another. We thank you for technology that bridges something of that, that gap. But uh, God, we long we long for the time where we can spend, we can spend it with one another. So God, we we ask for wisdom on how to move forward. And, and we trust that as, man, as, as, as you've done so much for us, that you will be faithful to be the light and the truth for how we are to walk forward in all of this. So we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to jump right into it. James chapter 2. I'm going to be just reading verses 14 through 17, and then we're going to pick up on a handful of texts from uh, the, the letter of James. So James chapter 2 verse 14 it states this it states what good is it my brothers if someone has faith and does not have works can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So, verse 17, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead dead. The question that we're going to try to cover, and there's overlap from week to week, but the question that we're going to cover this morning is, how can we do biblical justice? How can we actually do it? Now, again, within the last few weeks, there's not only overlap, but there's something of like a 30,000-foot view on all of this. We haven't really gotten down to the stuff that would probably make us uncomfortable in talking through issues of biblical justice. We're still kind of at that 30,000 view, right? We're getting the foundation work set. We're making sure that our eyes, even as the text was read from Psalm 43 and our call to worship, we're making sure that our eyes, first and foremost, are on Christ, who might be able to navigate us through the particulars of the injustices that we see represented in our own nation and culture today. We need to get the foundational view. We need to get our eyes on Christ. So it may seem as though, hey, we're just kind of skimming over the really uh, kind of uh, more uncomfortable issues. And, and it's not that. Perhaps in the next few weeks, we're going to actually be jumping into things that's going to make me comfortable to say and it will probably make you comfortable to, uncomfortable to hear. So we'll get there. Uh, but for now, we're still at 30,000 feet. How can we do biblical justice? And just briefly review, we've defined biblical justice as making others' problems my problems. Right? Isn't that what Christ ultimately did upon the cross for us? He made our problem his own problem. And when it comes to biblical justice, that idea of making others' problems, my problems, has both a retributive as well as restorative Kind of lens through which we go about doing that. So it does mean bringing justice to those who deserve justice, but it also has that idea of bringing restorative justice, helping the vulnerable uh, in their plight. Now, what James goes on to say, and this is startling, like you can't just sit back and just be like, well, uh, okay, yeah, we expect this from James because we're Christian and we know what James says faith without works is dead. Like, You can't just skim through that passage and not be struck with what he's actually saying. What James is actually saying in this text is that if you encounter someone who is vulnerable and you don't do anything to meet their need, he's saying you're actually denying your faith If not altogether, you don't have saving faith in the first place. That's a massive statement. If you don't have eyes for the vulnerable, and as they even come to you, as the text is saying, and and, and say, hey, I stand here in need, and you just look at them, be warmed and filled, keep going on your merry way, right? If you do that, you're denying faith in Christ. James is saying, you're not a believer for all the things you can confess about Christ, great, wonderful, for all the verses you've memorized, for all the devotional time, for all that good stuff, he's saying if you don't have works that accompany that faith, if you don't specifically care for the vulnerable, you don't have saving faith. That's a stunning bar, right, that is placed before us. Here's the expectation for a Christian. That if you run into the vulnerable, you don't do anything about being a Christian. Um, do we actually, does the Bible actually say elsewhere? Because that, that's huge. That's startling. Oh my goodness, right? Like you find a moment of guilt because you remember the time when, oh yeah, I just walked past that person and they were definitely in need, right? That there's something of guilt, there's something of self introspection in these moments when we hear something like that. So does the rest of the Bible actually concur with this idea? Does it actually agree? Well, yeah, just as we've seen in the Old Testament. Remember uh, Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his who? Remember? This is like the third time we've hit this text. (laughs) All right? Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. So if you do wrong to the poor, God's saying you're doing wrong to me. But he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. As you're generous to the vulnerable, you're actually being generous to God, right? The the person who is vulnerable actually isn't the full point, right? there's, There's a Godward dimension to this biblical justice. It's not just horizontal. It has incredible Godward view that says, when I encounter someone in need and I care for them, I'm actually rendering that care to God himself. I'm showing honor to him. Jesus will pick up on this idea in the New Testament. We've referred to this a few times. Matthew 25. It's a stunning text. It's another one of these texts, just like James chapter two, where Jesus talks about judgment day. There is going to come a day of judgment. And Jesus says, I'm going to divide the people to the right and to the left. has nothing to do with political leanings, right? To the right and to the left. Those on the right, he, sa- he will say, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. Come in to my fellowship. Right, And then he will turn to those on the left, and he will say, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink. Depart from me. That's what judgment day will look like, the bar for judgment. Whether or not you had saving faith, Jesus will say, well, it's about how you cared for the vulnerable. This is massive. Judgment day will work like James chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Your faith will be evaluated by its works, right? Because the vital signs of true saving faith, like if, if someone's alive, you know, they're going to have a pulse, right? They're going to be breathing, Similarly, the vital signs of faith is whether or not you're actually caring for the vulnerable. If You have a heart for them. If you see someone in need and they pass by and, and, and you're actually doing something, you're actually demonstrating this saving faith. So James is putting a massive kind of principle before us that if your faith does not have these kind of works this awareness this care for the vulnerable then in fact you don't have saving faith Tim Keller will say it this way and I just I love the way he frames it he says he says this text says that if you don't have a relationship with the poor you don't have a relationship with God right if you don't have a relationship with those who are vulnerable then that proves you don't have a relationship with God. It's a stunning, stunning principle. Now, if you're a, if you're a skeptic, kind of watching in, maybe you're, you, you've jumped online and you've been following Mercy Gay Church, and who are these people, and what are they about? And they keep talking about Jesus, what's going on here? Um, if you're hearing this, and you're a bit of a skeptic, or perhaps, maybe you're one who you've been a part of a church and you've watched kind of religiosity happen and you're, you've kind of like pulled away, um, Here's what I would encourage you with, is that there are radical inconsistencies within the church. The church has not done what James is encouraging the church to do. Right? He wouldn't have to say it otherwise. Uh, Most of the, the Bible wouldn't be kind of drilling down on these particular points if the church didn't have inconsistencies but here's what i want to encourage you with is that if the bible can be this critical about the church right then then in some sense like you can you can trust what the bible has to say Because the Bible in some sense carries your same criticism and actually wants to get down to the issues at hand, to the heart at hand, and actually do the unmining of the heart and actually bring about true change. So I would say the Bible is probably a bit more critical than you may be (laughs) of the church when it comes down to it. But it still begs the question, particularly from this text, is how do we do the work of justice. How do we do it? We can rightly live out this biblical justice uh, only as those who first and foremost have a relationship with God through the gospel. And and for if you know, if you've been a Christian for something, okay, yeah, like duh, like we, we know that, but that's the point that James 2 is getting at. Like, you need this vital relationship with God through the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus has won a relationship with God for us, and this relationship with God then is not achieved by us. It's not as though we go about doing all these good works in order to achieve a relationship with God. No, Christ has done everything, right? This relationship with God is not achieved. It is freely received. Ephesians 2, verse 8. I just got to Put the groundwork in there. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's not a bunch of work that you've done. It's not a bunch of biblical justice that you've been about. No, it's not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of works that no one may boast. Or Titus chapter 3, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us not by our own works, not by our own efforts. We didn't achieve it, but according to his mercy. So this relationship with God, the good news of the gospel is that it comes freely. It comes to us in our vulnerable state freely. So what does it require of us? Nothing of good works, but everything in terms of bringing our own uh, admonition of our sin. We admit the fact that we're sinners. We bring nothing to the table of salvation but our own sinfulness, even when it comes to our own sense of good works. Like, none of that is enough. And I, I know within our own culture, you ask someone on the street, are you a good person? And most people, yeah, I'm a good person. But most of the time if we would go through kind of the old testament law and say hey are we really that good we would actually come to find that we have failing after failing after failing and still we think we're good which that goodness then is self-righteousness and it's coming to god saying no i don't i don't have any good apart from you my sin is brought to the table of your grace. That's the great exchange that's found in the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin. That's what Jesus did. He became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, recently, I heard Tim Keller tell uh, a story that he had come across um, and it's the story of like this old, broken-down military vet, you know. So he's older in age, like the prime of his days way gone, you know. Here's this this old military vet, and he's accused of a crime. And so here's this old man accused of a crime, but here come all these military police to go take him in, you know. And so as as these big military police come in, you know, suddenly this old you know man sitting there immediately demands the honor and attention of those military guards. Suddenly, they come in, all all being brawny, and and, and immediately, as Tim Keller says, they snap to attention. And it's the stunning moment of honor that's being recognized. And why? Well, here, this old military vet hanging around his neck is the Congressional Medal of Honor, right? It's the medal that that stopped these military men, where it was just this old military vet they're gonna take in, but now they're interrupted in their work to give honor to whom honor is due. The medal hangs around his neck. The work has been done. This man deserves honor. He says in a very similar way, what Jesus has done for us is he stepped into the battlefield. And he's done all the heroic stuff. He's done all the sacrificial stuff. He's won all the medals. And really what he does for us is take off all of his accomplishments and he casts them on our neck. He covers our neck in his medals. like We gain his honor. We gain his perfect accomplishment, although we are still old, broken down sinners. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus takes our sin but gives us. He covers our neck in his honor so that Tim Keller says all of creation has to stand and salute. Although you're still a broken-down sinner. This is the gospel. This is the free grace of Jesus Christ granted to us. We stand in his honor. We stand in his righteousness. We stand in his benefits. It's the great exchange. He takes our sin, but adorns us in his honor and in his glory. Now you may sit back and you say, okay, why is this then so crucial for understanding how Christians should be about biblical justice? As we mentioned last week, at the core of Christianity there is a cosmic act of undeserved mercy. If the gospel is this gift of free grace given to the undeserved sinner, then how can we not as one who's received that undeserved mercy then the medals hang around our neck? How can we not then be agents of mercy? How can't we now show care for the vulnerable when we ourselves, the basis of our relationship with God is built upon that principle that he came to me in my vulnerability and he threw, he cast his honor on me. He made my problems his own problem and brought me honor in all of my place of broken downness. This is what the gospel is. This is what he has accomplished. This is kind of now the fountainhead for all of life as a Christian. I didn't deserve it. And he came with mercy. He showed me mercy. He hung his medals upon my neck. Right? That's the beginning of thinking about okay, why it is that I should be about this work of biblical justice. So as one who claims such. Faith in mercy. Should not that faith work to put that mercy on display? This is where biblical justice begins for the Christian by living from a clear awareness and faith in our merciful God. So, true Christianity that kind of results in these generous acts of biblical justice begins with a relationship with God through the gospel. But there's more, it goes deeper. The gospel has a unique effect, impact upon us as Christians. The gospel not only brings us into relationship with God, but what it also does is it reorders my identity. It reorders my identity. How so? When we come to saving faith in Jesus, he declares us new, right? We're children of God. We're new creations Uh, in Christ. We are his, he is ours. He literally calls us adopted into his family. He makes legal binding um, uh, decisions to make us his own through the blood of Christ. And so we are defined anew. Even James chapter 1 verse 18, new believers are defined as the first fruits of the new creation. You're given this significance. The honor of Christ hangs around your own neck. You're something other than what you once were. You're something new in Christ. Christ now defines who I am. He becomes my sense of significance. He becomes my sense of meaning. He becomes something of my security. Now, we have to be careful here. There's There's an error in our culture where we tend to think, oh, hasn't Christ been just so great to me, so great to me, so great to me. He gives me this new identity. He gives me this new, he calls me his own. Oh, what, what, what a thrill to my heart. So then when I'm just kind of like getting down on myself, well, I can just think about how, how much Christ is, you know, good to me. He's made me new, right? We have to be very careful. Is that true? In some case. But true, the reality of of this gospel must not just give us a new identity but reorder our identity. It kills certain aspects of how we view ourselves, in other words. It upholds other aspects and informs still other aspects. So for instance, when I came to Christ, I didn't stop being a white Caucasian. I didn't stop being a husband. I didn't stop being a father, right? The being in Christ doesn't change those things, but it certainly reorders them and reinforms them. I'm no longer just a white Caucasian, German, Swedish, Norwegian, however it all goes together, right, in my line of uh, lineage. I- I'm not just that. Fundamentally, now I'm in Christ. And now being in Christ, it shapes and gives meaning and understanding to who I am, whether it be a white Caucasian or whether it be a father or a husband or a pastor. like Those things are part of who I am, but now in Christ, they're redefined and reordered, so they don't stand at the core. It's not as though Jesus defining me anew is now just another way of viewing myself. amidst the many ways that I could view myself. Now, it's that Jesus stands at the very center and reorders and redefines everything that I am. That's huge for navigating the issues of injustice within our culture. That is, Psalm 43, that is the truth and light that we so desperately need in these kind of times where there's tensions all around, where no matter what you do or what you say, there's shame coming your direction, right? Either from the right or from the left. And so, when it comes down to it, we must keep in view that Jesus reorders our identity. To, to make this brief, I've got to kind of push a little bit. Uh, Augustine, he, he said it this way when it comes to this concept of our, our identity being reordered in Christ. He, he relates love to identity, right? And he says it this way. You've got you to follow or I'll, I'll lose you real quick. He says... He loves too little. He loves too little, who loves everything together with God, but not for God's sake. Right? He loves too little. it's, It's a love that is diminished. It's a love that's not full. It's a love that really cannot stand. A love that loves God together with everything else in our life. Right? So, I'm, I'm, I'm going to love Christ, well, but then I'm going to love what I want to love, and I'm going to love here, and I'm going to love there, and I'm going to have all my loves on the shelf, and God is just going to be another one of the loves. He, Augustine is saying, no, that's not the way the gospel is intended to work. The gospel reorders everything so that God stands at the center of everything and informs then all aspects of my life, who I understand myself to be. And so who I am in Christ must reorder everything else that I am, right? God is not just another thing on the shelf of my loves or where I understand my identity coming from. No, he stands at the center and reorders everything else. So that when I come to faith in God, now I'm not, just standing on my identity as a white Caucasian. I'm not just standing on my identity as a husband. I'm not just standing on my classism, whether I'm middle class or lower class or upper class. Those things aren't ultimate for my sense of significance. Christ is. This has massive impact for how we think about biblical justice. Look what James will say in chapter one, verse nine. He takes this concept of the, bo- of, of the gospel reordering identity And he says in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, let the lowly, that's the vulnerable, that's the poor, that's the lower class, right? Let the lowly brother exalt or boast in his exaltation, right? And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Let the lowly brother, let the lowly person in Christ actually think about how amazing uh, his seat with Christ is in the heaven. How high his place is in Christ, in other words. Let the lowly brother actually not place his identity in his classism that he's low, but let him actually recognize that in Christ he's seated in the heavenly places with Christ. But also let the rich guy, who's probably tempted to think that he's something because he has money, let him actually exalt in his humiliation. Let him exalt in the fact that what he has received in Christ is completely undeserved. Do You see? Now what the gospel begins to do is to reorient our identity, reorder our our identity. Even if I'm poor, guess what I get to do when it comes to the gospel? I get to reflect on the fact that these things aren't ultimate, they don't ultimately define me. No, Christ does, and I can recognize that even in a culture that would define me this way, I'm actually seated in heavenly places. It breaks the cultural stratification. But on the flip side, If I'm rich, and the culture would say, oh, you're something significant because you're rich. And my heart would be tempted to think I'm significant because I'm rich. What does the gospel do? Oh, it brings me down. It says, wow, how undeserving I am. And if I recognize that I hold my wealth, and yet I've received such undeserving mercy, now this sense of identity that the culture would say, oh, you're something significant. I don't have to hoard those things to be significant. I can actually recognize that I've received mercy, that my identity is that which Christ has shown me mercy that I don't receive. And there, I, I haven't done... I haven't gained myself, this is a free mercy, and therefore, I, can, I don't have to hoard my stuff to myself for my sense of significance, but I actually now am liberated to give it away, if need be. This is how the gospel begins to reorder our identity, inform every aspect of who we understand ourselves to be, or perhaps what society would say we are. It reorders everything in such a way in which it helps the morale of the poor and vulnerable, saying, you're seated in heavenly places. Christ came for you. But it also then helps the rich say, hey, those things that you think make you significant actually don't. And the true significance is actually found in giving those things away and honoring the one who shown mercy to you when you were undeserving. You see how this all begins to reorder how we view ourselves, how we view the classism in our day, how we view then even the vulnerable, how we view uh, our own stuff. It reorders everything. The gospel reorders our identity, once again, by strengthening the morale of the poor and vulnerable, but also by releasing the rich from the lie that significance is what they have attained unto themselves. When we allow the gospel then to reorder our identity through Christ, we are positioned to be agents of justice. We no longer have to hoard things, we no longer have to stand on things and and, and, and think that they bring me significance, but I'm free to actually give away as there may be need. Now, we have to come full circle. We need this relationship with the Lord, this undeserved mercy. We also recognize that what the gospel does in this undeserved mercy it reorient our own understanding of ourselves, despite what society may say of us. But then finally, what the gospel does is it reorders my responsibility. You see, it's enough that God would give us all that He gives us free mercy, right? Free mercy, free grace, defining us anew, casting all these these medals upon our neck when we've done nothing to gain them ourselves. It's enough that God would have done all that he has done to liberate us to the work of justice. We would think, like, okay, that's enough. Like, you have shown us mercy when we were undeserving. You have reoriented our own identity, and now things are now transformed by what you have accomplished. Shouldn't that be enough well, remember, even in Christ, with all those medals hanging around our necks, the honor that we've received from him, we're still broken down sinners. <laughs> Which demands James, right? It, it, it makes it real for him to have to actually say what he says in chapter 2, verses 14 and following. Saying, like, putting the question before us of how does your faith really work? So, Not only does the gospel reorder my identity, but it reorders my responsibility. It places a demand upon me. It places a command upon me. It places a responsibility on my shoulders. Now, what's interesting in in the letter of James, James will refer to this responsibility as the law of liberty, or he'll call it the law of royalty. In chapter 1, verse 25, well, 23 and following, James will say this. He'll say, very similar to chapter 2, verse 14 and following that we began with. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. In other words, you're still living like the broken down sinner that you are. You're not recognizing the medals that hang around your neck, the honor that Christ has shown you, the position that Christ has given you. He said, "You, you look into this word and you forget actually who you are. For he looks at himself, verse 24, and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing this perfect law of liberty this is the response, this is the command that he is placing upon us as christians or he'll say it this way chapter 2 verse 8 if you really fulfill the royal law so he's speaking the, the law of liberty And now this law of royalty. If you really fulfill this royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. In other words, when he's speaking of this law of liberty or this law of royalty, he's actually speaking of the great commandment, the first and second commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. But he specifically says that it is the law of liberty and the law of royalty. This responsibility that God places upon us to be about this work of biblical justice, this requirement, this responsibility, these commands are defi- they're, so, they're described as being liberty and royalty, So when it comes to thinking about the vulnerable and God saying, this is what you must be about because this is what I am about, this command that he places upon us, this responsibility that he places upon us, he's careful to define it as liberty and royalty. In other words, this life is liberty is not to kind of take away, it's not to be this burden upon you. It's not to be this this burden that sucks life from you. It's actually the way of life that will actually uh, most greatly put in perspective what life you've been given in Christ. As you care for the vulnerable, you'll walk in the way <laughs> of liberty as you love your God and as you love others, right? You're going to be walking in this way of liberty. This is not, this is not, you know, we just celebrated Independence Day, freedom. But freedom is not just the ability to choose what I want to do, right? It's not about my own desires and wants. If I get my own desires and wants, my life is going to be a mess. Where life comes from is binding my heart into my God who is life and who says, here's the pathway of life. It is the light and the truth that Psalm 43 would speak about. Christ is that liberty for us. And he says, this is the way. This is the pathway. This is how you go about actually living out the life that I've given you. Love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. He also then says, this is the law of royalty. In other words, it's directly from the throne of Christ himself. Remember where we began this series? Psalm 89, verse 14. It says that the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. In other words, the way God stands over all things, the way he operates and functions in his sovereignty over all things, in his authority over all things, is by the way of righteousness or generosity and biblical justice. Again, it has the idea of both restorative, retributive, both of those dimensions being at play. It's why God takes up the case of the widow and the orphan and the fatherless. It's why God's all about this work of restoration in this world. And so when it comes to this law of royalty... Really what the idea is, is if you want to walk in the way of the king, if you want to be kind of a a, a worker under his kingdom ethic, if you are who you truly are as a child of the king, then you will walk in this way of royalty. When you see your neighbor is in need, when you see the vulnerable who are in need, the way of royalty is actually tending to their need as one who belongs to the kingdom of heaven, right? So what James is doing is he's placing this incredible responsibility upon us, and it could be crushing if God had not supplied all that he has supplied to us through Christ, right? And therein, yes, even as we're still broken down sinners with our weaknesses and our blindness and in our, in our mess, we still carry the honor and the glory and so of Christ. And therefore, the whole call is to say, stand on the work that Christ has accomplished for you and walk in the way of life, walk in the way of royalty. You know, in some sense, like if you're called to lead, well, you should lead with a servant's heart, just as Christ did. If you're called to serve, well, serve with a king's heart. That royalty hangs around your neck. In other words, don't serve. Don't do these things out of a place of self-deprecation, of emptiness. Don't do it just because, well, it's a bunch of religious standards that I have to do. Through the Old Testament, God's going to warn us, if that's how you're going to go about it, it'll never last. You'll never be sustained through this work. Of biblical justice. But when you lean into all that Christ is for you and you walk in the way of his life and you walk in the way of his royalty, there will be an enablement to persevere. There will be a wisdom granted in moments of difficulty. There will be a way forward for you to be about the work of biblical justice and to persevere in it. So when it comes down to it, true Christianity that results in generous acts of justice begins with this. Next week we'll get into more of the practicalities, make one another comfortable and talking through some things that are really tough. Um, but when it, when it comes down to it, this generous act of justice begins with a relationship with God through the gospel that reorders our identity in Christ but also then Reorders our responsibility to others. And just know, this is a side note. When you walk that out, and I feel like this is, there's so much to to learn in the realm of biblical justice. So much. But in the small steps that we take as believers, the work itself, oh man, in moments, is devastating, crushing, emotionally exhausting, like, like, I got nothing left. <laughs> but it's in those moments that when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of Christ in so many ways. Where we have to lean into him. We have to lean into this way of liberty, this way of royalty. We, we, we come to a desperation of, of, man, I need Christ all the more. But after time of doing that, It's amazing that justice becomes its own blessing, its own reward. Because we can look back and say, yeah, things didn't turn out the way I would have hoped. Things kind of fell apart, even perhaps a little bit more. And yet we are faithful to walk this out. And as we walk this out, yeah, we came to the end of ourselves. But we came to know something in greater dimensions of God's and love for, for us. Something of the resilience of his grace at work within us. And so as you go about the work of biblical justice, biblical justice will be in some real sense its own reward. In other words, it's simply to end by saying, this work of biblical justice is not a burden. It'll feel like it at times, right? But it's not a burden. It is something that folks who know something of this relationship with God, who know how their identity has been changed, the grace now supplied to be about this work of life and royalty, Now there is so much benefit in it. There's so much more benefit to it justice itself becomes really uh, a reward in itself so let's pray god thank you for your kindness thank you for your kindness to us when we were undeserving you came after us in a a time where we would be so tempted, we are so tempted to just kind of take sides and kind of the social constructs of the day. We, We want to first think about you. We want to first think about who you are. We want to first think about this undeserved mercy that we've received from you. We want to first consider our own place of vulnerability that we were on a pathway to eternal destruction and you intervened you came after us you cared for us you've you have and are mending our souls we are a work in progress but what mercy we've come to know so god give us take us deeper into the wonders of your own mercy And God, we do pray then that you would impress upon our hearts with wisdom, with something of your resilient grace, just how we can go about doing this work of biblical justice. In the places that you have have placed us, where the work that you've given to us, the relationships that you've given to us, the neighbors that you've placed us with, the, the city that we are a part of. How we need wisdom and understanding how we can rightly represent you in doing the work of biblical justice here in Philly. So lead our hearts, guide our hearts, shape us according to your incredible mercy, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's
1: stand and sing our final song. Lift up eyes, lift up her-
0: By way of benediction, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Thanks for joining us.